Welcome to Brain in a Vat. We have a returning guest, Sean Stanley, who's done a number of exceptional episodes with us in the past and is going to be talking to us about moral realism today. Sean, would you like to start with a thought experiment? Thanks very much for having me back, Mark and Jason. It's lovely to be here. Um, so the thought experiment is this. I want us to imagine that we've come upon this incredible device, a kind of tablet sort of thing. And what it says on the label anyway is that if you type in a statement regarding celebrity gossip, this device is going to tell you whether or not that statement is true or false. And this is quite interesting. There's lots of news about celebrities that we care about, but we often don't get to know whether or not the gossip is true. So we use this device to find out certain things that we might be interested in. For example, did one of the members of the royal family express concern about the color of Meghan Markle's baby? Who knows? We can know now type it into the machine, and it can tell you true or false. Ditto for other things. You know, for example, Donald Trump says that he won the election by a lot. So we type that in. Did that happen? True or false? It tells us. So, you know, it ends up being really, really nice, really cool. We get to learn all these facts. And actually, we start to make a bit of money with this device because we place bets with our friends, uh, you know, on all sorts of unlikely celebrity things. And we start raking in the cash. Our friends are very interested in this. They want to know, how does this work? How do we come upon this incredible device? And conveniently, there's the label and address of the manufacturer. So we, we just go and we visit the manufacturer and we say, we're so impressed with your device. We really want to know, how does it work? How can you tell the truth so, so accurately? And he turns to us and, and he's very disappointed and almost embarrassed for us. He says, I'm, I'm sorry to have to reveal the, the truth the truth is that the output of this device is determined by arbitrary factors. Sometimes it's determined by the ambient light in the room. Sometimes it's determined by how many voices it can hear around it. Uh, sometimes it gives a yes answer on uh, the odd days of the month. It really isn't tracking truth. It's just determined by quite arbitrary features. And so it turns out that whenever this device has been right, it's only been accidentally so. Now, of course, I think the, uh, you know, the intuition we have or should have is that we should lose faith in the, the veracity of the output of this machine, um, because, of course, the method by which it makes these outputs is quite unreliable. Now, in moral philosophy and metaethics, uh, there's a debate, uh, an argument known as the evolutionary debunking argument. And this thought experiment is an analogy to get us talking about the evolutionary debunking. Um, the idea is that our moral beliefs, the things that, that we take to be really true, uh, for example, that murder is wrong, that you shouldn't kidnap innocent children. People normally have very strong feelings about these, these sorts of claims, and they take the strength of those feelings to indicate whether or not these claims are true. Um, however, what evolutionary biology tells us is that these intuitions, these feelings that we have, are generated by a process which is not at all interested in the truth. It's generated by a process of natural selection. So really, the reason that we have these intuitions, uh, these moral beliefs about murder, about not killing people, about uh, fairness and all that, is because it was evolutionarily beneficial for our ancestors, not because it was necessarily pointing at the truth. And so what this argument invites us to consider is that the, the real main evidence we have for whether or not there are these moral facts, our intuitions about things, actually isn't going to tell us anything about the truth, and there may well not be any moral facts at all. 
So Sean, we've had many guests on the show and very few of them, uh, I, I disagree with almost all. I was saying to Mark the other day, I think I've only agreed with one guest so far and that's Mark Humer, um, who's a libertarian anarchist um, or a free market anarchist. Uh, I, think, I think he's the only guest I agree with. So I disagree with all of our guests, um, but this one, I, this, this particular view, I, I, I seriously disagree with. Um, it, it, none of the other guests have get, gotten a rise out of me like this argument does. So I've got a slew of objections, but I'm just going to start with one. So one of your premises is that this gossip machine is useful or interesting because it generates these claims, which we take to be true, right? But that wouldn't happen unless they were true, at least most of the time, because they can be falsified. Right. So, what, you know, one of the examples you gave was that um, Trump won the election by X amount. Now, if it turns out that the gossip machine tells us that correctly, we'd be quite impressed. Now, you might say in any given case, you know, whether a statement is true or false might track spuriously with uh, the ambient lighting conditions in the room where the gossip machine is located. But if it just so happens that again and again and again and again and again it guesses correctly, um, we might say, well, there is some sort of lawful connection between the ambient lighting conditions in the room and these facts. So it seems to me like the example doesn't get off the ground because what you're trying to get at is this gossip machine isn't valuable at all. It's not actually telling you anything true about the world in a way that's causally connected to the world in the right sense. Instead, what it's doing is it's just giving you kind of randomized or arbitrary output that just happens to be correct enough of the time. But my point is, it'll have to be correct so much of the time that it's got to be lawfully connected in some way. Otherwise, you're living in a thought experiment, which isn't very realistic. Uh, that's, it's a good point, And it invites reflection on how it is in the one case it would be gossip machine, how it is that we learn that there's this kind of weird connection with uh, the facts, even though it's generated by this sort of strange, um, strange procedure, and how that tracks things in the moral case. So in the case of Donald Trump, presumably there is a fact of the matter as to how many people cast their vote for him, and presumably there would be some way for us to figure that out, at least in an ideal world. You can imagine that you know, we, we type this into the machine, it says, yes, it was true, Donald Trump won by a lot. And you can imagine that the reason that we'll end up knowing, oh, the machine is correct, is because there's some kind of independent check. I mean, perhaps in, in the future, it's reported by, you know, whichever investigative uh, organization is doing it, that actually Donald Trump won, and we have to redo the election or something like that. So in, in the one case, in the case of the thought experiment, there is a kind of external validation that we can perform on the outputs of the, the machine. Is that the case in, in the moral uh, issue? And, and that's really what, what, uh, what, what we're getting at here, that when we try to check whether or not our moral claims are true, what we really do is investigate our intuitions about them, right? I think that murdering is wrong because I don't want people to do it to me. It seems uh, unnecessary. I'll have a bad time, I'll go to jail. Etc. But all of these are all of these pieces of reasoning are generated by my intuitions. As these intuitions, the very veracity, which is being called into question by the evolutionary process. So, on the one hand, you're correct. I mean, the analogy doesn't track fully, but in fairness, no analogy will. Uh, but when we try to see 
where is the failure of the tracking and this analogy? It, the problem is that in, in the case of the machine, we have external validation of the facts. And in the case of uh, moral intuitions, it's not at all clear whether we do have external validation of apparent moral facts. So can you give us a bit of an account of how our moral intuitions evolve and why you want to make the claim that that's necessarily faulty and not truth tracking? Right. So there are a couple of issues there. Um, and I think maybe it, it's important to, to start out by just saying what, what is this position about moral facts we're talking about? Um, it's a position normally called moral realism. Sometimes people call it objectivism, but let's stick with moral realism. And it's basically the idea that there are mind-independent, value-independent facts about moral, uh, moral claims. So it can be objectively true that murder is wrong, um, objectively true that you should maybe pay your taxes. There can be these moral facts about how human beings should behave. And so what we're calling into question is that, that whole thesis, is that do we have a reason to believe that? The reason that people normally take up a realist position are their intuitions. They get a sort of moral sense as to what things are right and wrong. And so we're calling into question moral realism by calling into question its evidential basis, our intuitions about things. Why should we think that these intuitions are not truth tracking? Um, one reason is just that so long as we accept that we are the product of, uh, of evolution by natural selection, then it follows that our uh, phenotypical uh, properties, including our capacities to, to think and stuff, is generated by that process as well. That process is insensitive to so-called moral truths. And what it's really sensitive to is what sort of beliefs would lead our evolutionary ancestors to outproduce, outreproduce rather, their um, peers who didn't have those sorts of beliefs uh, or those sorts of intuitions. Um, and so, for example, um, we have it that uh, we've evolved, at least some people have evolved to find snakes uh, quite scary, quite dangerous. Um, a lot of people have a phobia of snakes, uh, but we don't have a phobia of um, electrical sockets in the wall. Um, now, it turns out that electrical sockets are far more dangerous statistically than snakes are today. But when we have our intuitive response uh, to snakes and fail to do that with electrical plugs, it's because the, uh, the response regarding snakes was evolutionarily beneficial for our ancestors. So it's not really tracking any truth about what's most dangerous in your environment. It's really just uh, tracking truths uh, that would have been beneficial for our ancestors. And that's why uh, we say it's not really truth apt for moral facts as such, just whatever happened to make uh, our ancestors have more babies. Okay, so to oversimplify things, you're in the room with a utilitarian and a Kantian. So Mark has Kantian leanings. I can understand this argument when it comes to Kantianism. It is totally bizarre to me how rights and duties and obligations are generated out of thin air. I, I can go along with moral anti-realism when it comes to Kantianism, but this argument doesn't work for me when it comes to utilitarianism, and here's why. Okay, so just to clarify, Kantianism is the view that an action is right just in case it tracks with certain obligations and rights and duties. Okay, that's just very, very broadly defined. Utilitarianism is the view that an action is right just in case it maximizes happiness or well-being. 
Now, this is why the distinction is important, because when it comes to utilitarianism, because we're tracking well-being, well-being is built into the evolutionary process. If our ancestors were acting in ways that didn't track with their survival, with their well-being, then they wouldn't evolve. They wouldn't have evolved. They wouldn't have survived. So you can see that conceptual link quite clearly. I cannot see it for Kantianism. So I'm prepared to throw Kantianism out as anti-real. That's fine. I'm happy to do that. But I don't see that link as clearly made for utilitarian, utilitarianism. Now, I understand that in your last point, you had an objection to this baked in, right? So part of what you said was, well, I can see how this would, how this would work in, in, in centuries or millennia past because um, our, our ancestors had very particular items that they had this evolutionary response to, you know, things like snakes. Whereas today we have these more abstract uh, notions like plug points and electricity and perhaps bank balances, which we don't have these evolutionary responses to. And so it seems like the, the utilitarian um, argument is only going to work in, in those prehistoric times. You know, it's not going to work today anymore. I, I'm guessing that's what your response is going to be. So just to preempt that, we do have, however, this amazing capacity to abstract. So we are able to say, well, you know, the snake was bad for us, not because it's a snake, but because it's got venom. And the venom is bad for us, not because it's got venom, but because it can cause harm. And it means that tomorrow morning when I get up, I'm going to have a pain in my leg. And guess what? If I, if I electrocute that leg on a wire, an exposed wire, you know, a few steps down the line, I'm going to wake up the next morning with a really sore leg, right? So it, it seems to me like the very same thinking that went into utilitarianism explaining um, why certain things are good or bad for us and tracking with our evolutionary process, but, but not in a way that, that doesn't make sense, like Kantianism does, um, can be used still for plug points and, and more sophisticated utilitarian arguments like bank balances. It's wrong to steal money out of someone's electronic bank balance. Yeah, I mean, th those are really good points. Um, the, the, I, I don't want to throw away Kantianism too, too quickly. I mean, they, they have to have some kind of a chance, right? Um, but, but yeah, as it, as it turns out, I, I'm probably quite sympathetic to utilitarian, uh, utilitarianism, but in an anti-realistic way. Um, so I, I, I think that, uh, really speaking, there's nothing true or false about the sorts of things I'd say are right or wrong, um, but I would use a utilitarian calculus to, uh, to determine them. Um, so I think that that's an important distinction to bear in mind, right? That you can be an anti-realist and a utilitarian, uh, or you can be an anti-realist and a Kantian, um, because really what utilitarianism is or what Kantianism is, these are moral theories. Uh, but what we are really trying to debunk is a particular take on those moral theories, a meta-ethical take. Um, and so, so, yeah, I think it's important to keep those two levels uh, distinguished a, a little bit. Um, regarding the objection, I mean, the technical responses, you know, natural selection isn't necessarily tracking well-being, it's tracking how many babies you can have. And you can have a lot of babies consistent with quite an unhappy life. Uh, so for example, uh, there might be some evolutionary explanations for why, um, why men tend to be relatively promiscuous, because if you do that, then you're able to um, uh, impregnate more people and so have more babies. Uh, and also some uh, explanations for why women are relatively more selective 
Um, there's a lot of investment that goes into uh, making a baby and you, you want to make sure that your partner is going to be able to support you through those difficult times uh, evolutionarily. Um, but I mean, so, you know, we definitely, I suppose some women may, may get the feeling, oh yeah, you know, should go for a good, honest guy. And, and this feeling is, is not generated by any kind of rational reasoning process, not often, uh, not, not in, in the, the base uh, layer of it. Um, so, so yeah, I see the link between well-being and, um, and natural selection, but I think, I think it's kind of intermediary. It so happens that sometimes it's a good thing for the creature to have a nice life, but really what's more important is that it has more babies from the point of view of natural selection. Um, but I, I wanted to, to respond in, with, with an objection of my own and to say, you're right, we can reason about uh, snakes and electrical plugs and so on. But another thing we can reason about is beauty. So you and I could you know, open, open a book full of, I don't know, all these models, and we could try to reason together which of these models is more beautiful than the other. And we could definitely use, you know, all sorts of fancy reasoning. Oh, this one's more symmetrical. This person uh, is more is fitter in some way. We could do that. And now we can ask the question, is there an objective sense of beauty or is it in the eye of the beholder? And really what the evolutionary debunking person is saying is that when it comes to morality, it's in the eye of the beholder. By the way, I agree with you on beauty. Um, Mark doesn't, and we're going to hear from him in a moment. But I, I agree with you that um, that classifying certain things as beautiful and others as not beautiful is junk. Um, so you've got an anti-realist about beauty, but I think there might be a disanalogy between beauty and morality. Um, not sure exactly what it is. I need to think about it, but they don't seem to me to be the same type of thing. Um, but yeah, I'll hand it over to Mark. A couple of thoughts. The one is, I think, you know, Jason's move to try and say that evolutionary progress is um, being tracked in utilitarianism, I think is incorrect for another reason, which is utilitarians um, are thinking about utility for everyone, overall well-being. They're not thinking about it in the egoist sense of what can I do to maximize my own self-interest. So I think those things are going to come apart. On the aesthetic front, I mean, there is an argument that there's something normative when we talk about objects that are beautiful in the world. We think that they are better and worse. Uh, we think that people can have good taste or bad taste. And it seems to be the case that there are some reasons why we've evolved some of our aesthetic views. So we think that, for example, someone that's very pallid um, might be ugly um, because that might have been uh, an indicator of sickness and in other words if you want to you know produce children that are not sick you know you pick a mate that you know looks uh you know with rosy cheeks for example um so there might be very good evolutionary accounts for why we think certain things are more beautiful in the world than others but here's where i want to push back against sean which is it might be the case that our moral intuitions come from this faulty system, as you say. In other words, it's a little bit arbitrary why we think certain things are immoral because we happen to evolve in a certain way. And if you think about people's moral attitudes towards various things, it, they could be explained through this faulty evolutionary process. So for example, a lot of people have thought that being gay was immoral um, or that um, having intermarriage across racial lines was immoral and that this might have come from a sense of repugnance and maybe these in other words a feeling of yuck i don't like this i don't like the intuitive feeling i have and this may be explained in evolutionary terms in other words why you know you want to 
remain with members of your in-group and why you think that it's dangerous to consult with members of an out-group. Um, you know, there could be an, exp an evolutionary explanation for it. But I don't think that our moral intuitions are the end of the story. So if we think about Rawls's method, he says, well, we've got to have a reflective equilibrium. So on the one hand, there's the moral intuitions. And on the other hand, there's our set of moral principles. And they do a dance. And it might be the case that some of our intuitions just cannot be squared well with our moral principles. Uh, and therefore, the intuitions need to be chucked out. Um, and so there's something useful in the evolutionary accounts in explaining why some of our intuitions might be faulty, um, but they don't, to my mind, solve the picture. In other words, it could be that some of our moral views are incorrect, and we can give a good account of why, but it may still be the case that there is a true morality out there that is sometimes, um, you know, let's say maybe arbitrarily in line with our intuitions, but can be better accommodated by some kind of moral theory, either, you know, a Kantian sort or a virtue ethic sort or utilitarian sort. Yeah, I mean, those are really good points. Um, I, so, so yeah, I mean, regarding rules and reflective equilibrium, um, I mean, I've never really been very convinced by this as a response because it seems that the dance that you're talking about doesn't really tackle the issue, right? I mean, I might have certain, uh, let's say, feelings of repulsion against um, uh, gay people or something, and then I might have a moral principle, on the other hand, which says, you shouldn't arbitrarily discriminate against people because of uh, who they like to be with. Um, so you can see that definitely like the one might object to the other and we can come to reflective equilibrium about which, uh, which principles we, we think are, are the right ones. But it seems to me that the moral principles are themselves backed up by further intuitions. After all, why? what is the justification for thinking that we shouldn't arbitrarily uh, discriminate against people because of who they love. I mean, you know, we, we'll say, oh, well, it's a matter of fairness. It would be unfair. But why is unfairness something that should really matter? Um, well, it just surely seems so in my heart. And, you know, this, it, it just seems so, it just, it must be right. This is a moral intuition. So it's true. I mean, I've given a, a relatively vulgar account of how we have this sort of one-to-one -one link between intuitions and moral beliefs and so on it is it is more complicated than that but the complication is uh, a difference of degree not of kind in both in, in all cases it seems to me that we're dealing with um, moral intuitions and it's the, the, the veracity of those moral intuitions which is now in question whether there is some moral truth out there that you know we we haven't yet discovered raises its own sort of meta metaphysical problems uh, one, it's not obvious what it would be for there to be moral facts out there. Um, but two, I guess it also raises an issue of parsimony and, and simplicity. Uh, why should we assume that there is this apparently inaccessible realm of moral truths? Why not just suggest we have certain intuitions because of our evolutionary history? They're not tracking any external moral truth. And this is also what accounts for a lot of the uh, variation that we find in moral attitudes not just through time, but within the same society. Consider, for example, uh, the following thought experiment. Take 10 people into a room randomly selected uh, and place them in an abortion clinic and ask them to look upon the procedure and to explain whether or not the procedure is correct. If there's a moral fact about whether or not abortion is, is okay, then presumably our random randomly selected people would be able to say, ah, yes, it is okay, or no, it's not okay. 
But what's likely to happen is you're going to get a variety of different answers. Um, and I think that this is another way of indicating that there might not be the moral truth out there. It's rather more determined by cultural specificity of, of people's upbringing. Sean, I've got so many objections. <laughs> but let's, let's just start with this, this last statement that you made. So imagine an analogy, right? So um, there's a scientific experiment going on in a room and there's a definite outcome uh, with a scientific experiment. So I, there's, a, there's, a, there's a channel on Facebook that I love to watch. Um, I think he's called Action Lab. And what he does is he, he runs all these different experiments. And he often says before it starts, okay, can you predict what's going to happen? He loves vacuum chambers and doing interesting things. He says, what, what, what's going to happen when I, when I run this experiment, right? And, and the one I watched yesterday was he blows through a straw and the straw is face down and it's, it has a bend. So it, it, it's L-shaped and he blows into it from the top and the, the, the longer side is vertical and the shorter side is horizontal. And he says, what, what is going to happen to the straw when I blow through the straw? And what, what happens is when he blows through the straw, the, the straw moves towards him. It moves horizontally towards him. And he explains the physics behind that. And then he says, okay, well, what is now going to happen when I suck through the straw? And now there is tremendous debate among people about what's going to happen when he sucks through the straw. Will it move right? Will it move left away from him or towards him? And there's all sorts of physicists that have debated this. Um, but there is an answer, right? There is an answer. It either goes towards him or away from him. If we use the same reasoning you've just used, put a whole lot of people in the room, if there was a fact of the matter about what's going to happen to the straw going backwards or forwards, then they should all guess correctly, right? But obviously, they're not going to guess correctly because we do have we do have disagreement about this. Um, and, and so, you know, if I was using your reasoning, I would conclude from this, well, that there's no fact of the matter about the way physics works when it comes to air movements through straws. You know, they, they, they just aren't these facts. They don't exist at all. They're not real. But obviously that's not true. There is a fact of the matter, whether the straw moves backwards or forwards. So that kind of reasoning, just it's not valid. So yeah, look, really good point. Um, but I would want us to maybe expand on this thought experiment, right? So we have the, the scientist with the, the straw and I mean, presumably he's going to demonstrate what's going to happen in the case where he's sucking through the straw. And, you know, everybody who's watching the video can witness uh, the, the procedure. And I, I guess he will, uh, you know, refer to some equations and, and explain, you know, how exactly these forces are interacting. So it's possible to do that in the case of physics. It's possible to do that in a lot of cases. Is it possible to do that in the case of morality? Take those 10 people, ask them the question, you know, is, is abortion right or wrong? And now let's continue the analogy. What are the experiments that we would perform? What is the procedure to, to perform in order to determine whether or not abortion is right? It's not at all obvious what the procedure is, or even if that, there is one. And what the anti-realist is claiming is that there isn't really a procedure to be performed because there aren't any facts of the matter. So it's, I, I think if we take your analogy you know, seriously and try to see what would happen in the moral case, I, I think the objection loses its force. So if I understand you correctly, what you're saying is that in both cases, you've got disagreement. And in the straw case, we can determine what the correct answer is because there's some evidence for it. 
And in the abortion case, the question is, what would that evidence be? How would we get to the truth of the matter? And I think there is some force in the anti-realist position, which is you say, what we have in the world are physical facts, okay? And there's this you know, classic view that you can't extract an ought from an is. How do you get from the physical facts to saying that there is something that you should do or should not do? And you might think that the onus is on the person who claims that there are these moral facts. And they might start to sound like a supernaturalist. And they just say, well, I have faith. I have faith that certain things are wrong. Like I have faith in a supernatural deity who's a guiding force in my life. You know? And that you might think that you know, when someone uses this moral language, um, you know, it's, and you listen to it as an anti-realist, you say, it's kind of like when a religious person is talking about their belief in God. You know, it's, they have a sincere belief in it, but it's all kind of nonsensical because God doesn't exist. Um, and so they've got the same kind of relationship. What I wonder about, something you alluded to earlier, is that, well, maybe you can have the metaphysical view, which is that there really are no moral facts, um, but you can still make use of a moral theory practically. So you might have a kind of fictionalism where you say, I'm going to act as if it is true that there are rights and there are virtues and that the world might um, you know, go better if we do that, even if those things don't exist. So for example, you might think as well that the atheist says, look, I'm quite concerned given the, you know, given human nature, if people just stop believing in God, they might start doing all sorts of horrible things to each other. So I'd prefer it if they held this false belief for my own sense of safety. They're going to believe that there's all these obligations on them, that you don't go around, you know, like uh, stabbing people to death and stealing from them, because otherwise you're going to wind up in a fiery pit. And so I'm happy for them to believe these false things. And you might say the same with uh, the utilitarians and the Kantians. You're like, I'm happy for them to believe these false things because... You know, the world operates more smoothly or more harmoniously. You could kind of cash it out in some kind of non-moral way. Very good point. And yeah, I do think that there is, there should be an onus on the moral realists to say where exactly they're getting their evidence for, for these claims. Interestingly, I think in, in philosophy generally, moral realism is sort of assumed as the default position. Um, but yeah, I think maybe there is a problem with that because one does end up sounding a little bit like they have mere faith and that that shouldn't really count for rational discourse. Um, but yeah, whether or not we should then live as, as fictionalists, uh, live, act as if there was um, some truth to a moral theory, um, that is actually, I guess, how I, I live my life. I, I'm a nihilist. I don't, I don't think there are any moral facts at all. But I do act as if some things are right and wrong. The reason being is that life goes a bit more smoothly for me. For that reason. Um, and I think that this is reason we could all adopt. Um, you know, if you're nice to others, they'll be nice to you and you want people to be nice to you. Um, why, is it, why is it that you want people to be nice to you? Because it feels good, because that's how we were evolutionarily developed. Um, but not because of any sort of grand moral fact out there. It's just, it's nicer when people respect you and not mean. So you should probably do the same to them. And this is a very weak notion of should. This is I should do the thing that's going to allow me to get more of what I want and more of what I want is peace and harmony. So in that sense, yeah, I think it's quite feasible to be a, an extreme anti-realist, but then also to simply act as if there were these uh, moral principles and you use that to guide your life. It's quite alarming to be the only non-sociopath in the room. Um, so, so, I mean, the sociopath says exactly this, right? He says, well, you know, uh, what's right and wrong, uh, you know, what's that? 
all that matters is what makes life go more smoothly for me. You know, um, that's just textbook sociopathy. Um, okay, so I'm not willing, uh, along with you and Mark, to, to move the burden of proof onto the moral realist. Um, to me, where the burden of proof generally lies is with the person who has the counterintuitive position, which must be you in this case, Sean. Um, now, now you've tried to shift that burden and Mark's just given it to you. He's like, yeah, yeah, we'll take on that burden. But, uh, but I'm not prepared to, to take that on. And I just want to look at one or two analogies, right? So I'm going to go, going to go back to the physical world and I'm going to say to you, all right, Sean, well, I'm a, I'm a, a physical anti-realist. I'm a nihilist about physical objects and, um, yeah, uh, prove to me that they're there. Right. And, and you might say, well, no, hold on a moment. This is not my responsibility. And I'll say, no, no, it is because you've evolved in such a way that you, you, your senses uh, are tuned to objects, to physical objects, because that's helped you reproduce better. You've got to find that vagina in nature uh, to impregnate it. You've got to see it. You've got to touch it and do whatever you've got to do to it. I mean, these things are very, are very uh, mysterious to me as a gay man, but that's, that's what you've got to do in order to, to, to reproduce. So you've got this evolutionary uh, leaning towards recognizing physical objects. Um, but, you know, um, we get them wrong a lot of the time. You know, a lot of the time it's arbitrary. There's all sorts of visual illusions that we have. We see faces on the moon, uh, on Mars, you know, there's, there's all sorts of there's all sorts of errors in our in our perceptual thinking uh, in our perceptions, and so you know they're just mere experiences, not perceptions. They're not indicating anything real about the world. There's no physical objects, and this intuition that you have about physical objects, well, that doesn't really matter. Um, and just because most of us agree on that doesn't mean that it's sufficient to generate you know the truth that there are physical objects. I'm a nihilist about physical objects now. The burden of proof is on you to prove that they're there. So I think maybe you want to uh, label this episode, Mark and Sean exposed for sociopathy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I think it's, it's an interesting point. And, you know, I've, ju I've just made um, an appointment with my dentist because I'm about to bite a couple of bullets. Um, <laughs> um, so, yeah, I, I think something I used to do in my class to to show the weakness of, of intuition uh, when it comes to our expectations of the world is I'd get like quite a big heavy book and I'd scrumple up a piece of paper and I'd, I'd get them to ask, you know, which is going to hit the ground first? And most people, you know, they, they tend to think, well, the paper doesn't have that much mass. So, you know, it's, it's not going to reach the ground quick enough, but actually they, they reach it at the same time and everyone's you know, very amazed. Ooh. Um, and it's a way of showing that even though something may intuitively seem to be a certain way, that isn't a demonstration that it is a certain way. We often need um, extra evidence. Um, one of the philosophers I really like, a uh, philosopher at, at Bristol, um, James Ladyman, uh, also speaks about intuitions in, in his book, Everything Must Go, um, in the first chapter, and, and does note that because many of our, our intuitive systems, our intuitive way of being in the world, is developed by a process of evolution, which isn't always tracking the truth, there are going to be certain sorts of things that we're good at following intuitively and other things that we probably aren't. So I think he speaks about medium-sized dry goods. We're good at tracking the patterns of medium-sized dry goods, like other people or other animals are going to do, et cetera, but probably not about fundamental particles. 
Um, and for, for that, you need something beyond intuition, or at least something, something more than it. And now just regarding your, your concern about objects, so for physical objects, um, yeah, we do. I mean, we all have corrective devices on our, on our faces because we all have deficiency in our, in our eyes. And it's true that we do use extra technology to help confirm and or disconfirm our intuitive views of the world. In this case, for example, our folk physics. What would our folk physical intuitions be? Maybe you're doubting it because you, you think it's been wrong in other cases. You've been uh, the subject of illusions before. So maybe you should just stop believing in physical objects. We can test this out and we can see, okay, are there physical objects? We can have these external ways of checking. And this is what I'm saying is lacking in the moral case. Um, it seems as if the real way to check in the moral case is to engage in a procedure of reflective equilibrium or something like it. But to do that is just to reinvoke the thing that I've put into question, the veracity of these intuitions. So I've already met your challenge. I've said, you know, these intuitions are troublesome. Explain to me why, despite that, we should believe in their deliverances. Okay, but hold on. I'm not going to let you get, get, get off it that easily. So these external devices that you're talking about, how do we use those external devices? Don't we look at them and say, well, my intuition is that this external device is giving me the real answer. It's not people's intuitions about whether the paper falls to the floor slower than the book. Um, actually, actually, yeah, the crumpled paper and the book do hit the floor at the same time because my external device, this camera says so. Why do we trust that camera? Well, we trust it because intuitively that makes sense to us. You know, it makes sense to us that when we all collectively agree that we look at that camera, that camera is telling us the truth. That sounds to me just like us all collectively agreeing on certain fundamental truths when it comes to moral facts. So you're absolutely right. We disagree on certain moral claims, but what you're ignoring is the vast majority of moral claims that we do agree on. And it seems to me like when you're talking about the camera that takes a picture, a snapshot of the, the crumpled piece of paper and the book hitting the floor at the same time, what you're doing is you're appealing to some sort of fundamental collectively agreed upon a physical fact. Um, and that's very similar to me to when there's these so sort of archetypal claims um, that everyone, regardless of their moral theory, provided they're not a sociopath, will agree with. Um, so I, 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 I don't think that there's the strong disanalogy between the two. That's really interesting because I, I think where I'd like to push back first is with respect to our trusting of the camera. Um, I, don't, I don't think in that case it's only because we have a kind of intuition, a, an intuitive gut feel that the, the camera is accurate or something. There's a lot of theory behind how the camera works, how light is reflected off objects and so on. Theory which can, one, be independently tested, and two, we can use to predict certain things about the world. Um, you know, for example, uh, about which sorts of comets are going to pass by and so on. So I, I don't think it's merely uh, intuitions that we have or a kind of collective agreement. But again, I, you know, it's lucky I got the, the dentist appointment because if, if really all there was to scientific claims was a collective agreement, then yeah, th there would be a strong challenge to the objectivity of, of, those, um, of those claims. I mean, one of the interesting things about science is that even when a lot of people disagree um, or, or object to a certain thing, for example, the theory of evolution by natural selection, 
that is not itself an indicator that the theory is false. In fact, the theory could be true even if everyone disagrees with it. Um, and there, there are external ways of checking that. That doesn't seem to be so in the moral case. There's a lot of, you're right, a lot of agreement, but it seems that the reason that you'd want to say, for example, murder is wrong, most people agree with that, is not because of some external fact, but because we all collectively, or most of us collectively agree that murdering is bad. Okay, good. I, I, want, I want to push back one last time on this because I, I think what's very interesting is that you're counting certain things as evidence, but not others. So you're counting um, theories about the wavelength of light as a theory and as evidence, but you're not counting utilitarian reasoning as, a, as evidence. And I find that interesting because it seems to me like the reason why we would take theories about the wavelength of light to be important evidence is because they gel with our general intuitions. I'm not saying that's all there is to those theories being true. So I'm not trying to reduce science to our intuitions. But what I'm saying is those intuitions seem to track very well with whether a theory is true. But it can turn out later that we're wrong. And of course, there have been revolutions in science. So, you know, this is, this is Kuhnian theory is that science, science undergoes massive changes, um, massive paradigm shifts where we throw out everything and we adopt a completely new set of scientific principles. Um, why? Because our intuitions start to chip away at some of the fundamental building blocks. Now, it seems to me like that is a very similar process to a methodical, very um, uh, careful concerted effort among ethicists to work out whether certain claims are true or false. And I think the, the, the perception that a lot of non-philosophers have is that ethicists sit there, twiddle their thumbs and guess whether something's true or false, whether a moral claim is true or false. But I think in reality, there's actually a lot of discussion behind the scenes and a lot of avenues of argument that are thought through and deepened and deepened. And some of those avenues are then cut. You know, some philosophers in journals will argue very effectively that a certain form of reasoning just doesn't work. And then philosophers will turn around and say, yeah, that, that avenue of reasoning doesn't work. That doesn't mean necessarily that we suddenly think abortion is bad or suddenly think it is good about the bigger question, but we've at least answered one of the tributaries. And um, now we can focus on other tributaries of argument. And that sounds very similar to me to scientific reasoning and scientific progress. Oh, there's so many interesting points there. I mean, about what it means to, to make progress in ethics, uh, you know, what, what it means for, for there to be scientific paradigm changes and so on. Um, I think first, I probably want to say that the, the same kind of re, uh, realism or anti-realism argument uh, that occurs in, in ethics also occurs in science, right? So there are scientific anti-realists who maybe actually as a result of such radical paradigm shifts that you mentioned from, from Kuhnian theory, they'll suggest actually our theories are not tracking uh, some, some objective truth out there. Really, our theories are just satisfying our basic uh, experiences and experiments and so on, the, the theoretical items, uh, the non-observable posits, we have no warrant to believe that they exist. Um, and that's not a crazy position either. There are a number of very strong anti-realist uh, defenders. Uh, I'm not one of them, I suppose, but you know, I, I just want, want to add that it's not obvious that we should be realists about the, the output of scientific theory. Um, I'd also want to say that I mean, although, you know, theories of light and so on, that, 
that definitely gels with, with experience. A, a lot of quantum mechanics, for example, doesn't. Um, that seems to be positively strange. So I, I think even successful physical theory can come, a, come away from what seems intuitively right about, uh, about the way the physical world works. Um, but then, yeah, re regarding uh, ethics and, and the nature of its progress and so on, I definitely don't want to argue that either ethicists are just twiddling their thumbs uh, or that there isn't something analogous to the rigor and uh, intense scrutiny of claims that goes on um, among ethicists and among scientists. Um, I think the, the rigor is, of course, using different sorts of tools. I mean, like you don't normally, actually, I mean, some ethicists do use this, but I would imagine most don't always use like equations and, and all that. The physicists will have much more use for that. Um, but we can still ask the question, what is it that the, they investigate, you know, some other moral claim? Are they discovering truths about an external world, external facts which are true, independent of our interests and so on? Or are they discovering truths, for example, about human interests? And insofar as the answer is the second one, these are truths about what you and I might like or dislike, that cuts away uh, whether or not we're being realists now. We're just discovering things that we like and don't like, things that we would or wouldn't approve of. But that isn't the same thing as discovering external objective moral facts. So I want to return to something we talked about earlier, which is this reflective equilibrium argument. So what you've said is that, well, theory really can just be boiled down back to intuitions and the intuitions themselves are faulty. So let me give you an example of an account that I think doesn't rely on these intuitions. So if we take a certain version of Kant's, Kant's categorical imperative, the idea is this, right? You must have a means and an end. Um, so for example, um, I want to get $10 from you. And the means I'm going to adopt to get that end is to lie to you. Okay. And then the question is, well, can I achieve that? Yes, I lie to you. I say, listen, you know, I'm really ill and I need the $10 so that I can go and buy medicine. And you say, okay, no problem. I'm going to give you the $10 and I'm successful in achieving my end using my means. And then Kant says, well, what you have to do is universalize the maxim and see what happens. And if it turns out that everybody lies in order to get the money, well, then people don't get the money because we know, well, this person is lying. So it then the means fails to achieve the end. There is no real moral speak in this. It's just a kind of like rational test to work out what happens when we universalize and we see that, you know, there's a failure and therefore we say it is wrong. Um, so I haven't had to rely on any other kinds of moral intuitions. I haven't had to say something like, you know, um, imagine a world where everybody was lying all the time and all the bad consequences that would ensue from that. I'm not playing that game. I'm just saying it doesn't work logically once we do the universalizing exercise. Now, the claim then is that we're tapping into some kind of rational truth about the universe and this can generate genuine moral answers for us. So this would have nothing to do with how we evolve. It might be that we've evolved a certain set of moral intuitions and they don't track with um, this categorical imperative, but so much the worse for our moral intuitions then. The answer is that this is what is true morality. That's a very good point. Um, I've got two responses. The one one's more philosophical and i don't think is that convincing but i'll try throw it out there uh you've not used any moral language in this example this is a rational 
uh, calculation that you've made, you realize that if you do certain things, you'll fail to achieve your ends. That's not what you want to do, obviously. So there's some things that you shouldn't do. Um, a philosopher called G.E. Moore uh, had uh, quite early on invented a problem known as the open question problem. And this is the, the question of uh, how exactly we should be able to determine what sort of thing is moral. So you've developed this, you know, so let's call it a, a rational uh, calculation. What is the evidence to suggest that it is also moral that you shouldn't lie to me? And that, that's the open question problem and it's apparently quite difficult to solve. I don't think, however, that that's the most interesting way to respond to you. So I'll also suggest um, some findings from evolutionary game theory. Um, so in evolutionary game theory, what happens is that uh, fictional entities play games or, or uh, compete with each other in a certain kind of contrived environment. Um, and so, for example, um, this could be a case of lying or, or being honest. And there's always a payout matrix for each of the, the entities playing. So if we both lie to each other, then we'll both get nothing. If you lie and I tell the truth, then I'll get more points than you. If we both tell the truth, we'll get suboptimal uh, payouts, etc. Um, and what people find is that the, the strategy which is the most successful, which gives you the most points, the most utility, is a strategy called uh, defect then tit for tat. So the idea is that between two, two players, or two, two randomly associated players, if one of these players defects first, so they, they tell the truth and the other person lies, they get more points than if both of the people told the truth. Um, and then in every other game, just do whatever the other person does as well. So if the one person defects, you defect. If the other person cooperates, you cooperate. What happens is that over time, um, it turns out that the people who end up lying first and then forget about it and become like a nice person, they end up getting more utility. And this is a way of expressing a general problem in social evolution known as the problem of free riding. Um, normally, we will all benefit if we live in a cooperative society and we're all cooperating with each other. However, there are some people who can benefit a little bit more by failing to cooperate given that everyone else is cooperating. Think, for example, about coronavirus responses. Early on, we were told to stay at home, do your part so that the virus stops spreading. Now, really, if most people stay home, but you and your friends go out and have a good time, it's not going to be that bad for everyone else, statistically speaking. But you're going to be gaining a lot more than everyone else who's cooperating by staying indoors. So in this sense, lying to get the $10, uh, defecting in the evolutionary game theory, um, or going out with your friends despite the lockdown, can still be a good thing despite what you've noted, that it's not going to be universalizable. You can still benefit. And now the question is, why shouldn't you? Most people say, because it's wrong. You should cooperate with people. And now we're back using moral language. So this is something I want to pick up on, which is that the, the difficulty with being a moral nihilist is that you rob yourself of certain kinds of language. So for example, Let's say we, we try and think of these kind of, most people are going to agree that this is a, a, 
a bad thing to do, which would be to torture a baby to death uh, for no reason other than the fact that it brings you pleasure. Okay. And if I tell you, look, um, you're not going to get caught. Um, it's never going to come out. It's not going to affect any of your prudential self-interest. Um, and you say, but I would feel guilty. I'd say, but your guilt is irrational. Like, you know, in other words, it doesn't track any kind of moral fact in the world. Um, so we don't actually have a prudential reason to refrain from torturing the baby to death. Um, maybe you sort of say, well, I don't have the desire. I wouldn't find it much fun. I said, well, we could cultivate the desire. Like you could cultivate a taste in fine wine. You know, and there'd be nothing wrong with that, of course, because there's nothing immoral in the world, right? It, if you had to sort of go and pluck a bunch of babies and pull their eyeballs out and sort of work out the most enjoyable way to do it, well, this would all be fine. You know, there's you know, there's, there's nothing immoral about any of this. Um, and it seems like that's a very, very hefty bullet to bite, right? In other words, once we start to take away moral language um, and you say, well, the reason why I'm not refraining, why I'm not doing this activity is some kind of non-moral reason, you know, I think there's something interesting about Jason's charge about trying to work out is the position, you know, one held by a psychopath or a philosopher. I think it's often quite hard to tell the difference. Um, you know, I think philosophers are we're comfortable asking these very hard questions um, and we want to explore this sort of controversial subject matter. And I think from an outsider, people go, that's pretty psychopathic. Um, but I do think it requires biting these serious bullets. Yeah, I hope, Sean, that your dentist does orthodontic work as well. So yeah, I just want to preface my response by saying that I, I don't want to torture babies for fun. I'm a generally speaking friendly person, so I'm fine. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I'm, I'm biting this book. <laughs> um, in, in that case, when you know I, I've been groomed to just want to torture these babies, yes, it will never be found out. You can, you can get me a private room, you know, nice air conditioning. <laughs> yeah, yeah, torture away. <laughs> Um, we are going to be banned on YouTube. Serious <laughs> <laughs> sort of response, and it's it's to do with uh, philosophical methodology, maybe generally, but then also uh, metaethical or ethical methodology, more specifically. Um, philosophically, I'm I'm quite an extreme naturalist, so for me, I I never really take intuitive plausibility as the mark of a true claim, um, because I, I, I think that intuitions are so evidentially poor when we're dealing with metaphysics or epistemology or whatever it happens to be. So that's its own independent position. And, and so for that reason, you know, you've given me this very extreme example, and it, it is not intuitive that it would be okay to torture this baby. But then again, that doesn't really mean much evidentially as far as I'm concerned. Um, whether or not something is, is right or wrong, or you should or shouldn't do it, uh, would have to depend on something else. And this also brings us back to the, the issue of, you know, what is it to hold a counterintuitive position? It's to hold a position that our evolutionary ancestors would have been quite uncomfortable holding because it would probably would have prevented them from being evolutionarily successful. That's true. And I, I, I mean, that's what I've been saying, uh, but that's not quite identical with saying that the counterintuitive position is the immoral one or the morally non-factual one. And so, yeah, you've given this very extreme and gruesome example. And of course, I mean, my own intuitions are saying, no, don't torture the baby, it's innocent, it's innocent. Uh, but yeah, philosophically, because I don't think that intuitions carry much evidential weight, 
I don't see its counterintuitive uh, nature as a reason not to do it. Um, I'd hope that there are other reasons, right? Like, you know, I would feel too guilty. I couldn't be groomed into wanting that sort of thing. But yeah, and so far as your example is as pointed as it is, I have to bite that bullet too. So I, I just want to come to your defense a little bit. I mean, I hate to do this, but um, so so th there's a difference between saying that something is is not immoral and something is moral. So just by saying that that you don't see a moral reason not to to harm the baby, you're not saying it's the right thing to do. You're just saying it's not the wrong thing to do, and there is a distinction there. Yeah, I mean, that, that's a good one. The, the nihilist just doesn't believe that anything has any moral properties, um, not in any objective sense. Um, I mean, as it turns out, like I, I'm persuaded by Rawlsian type arguments. So, so I do think really that uh, there are sort of things that I, I should do that I'm obligated to do, but that's just because I've agreed with a bunch of other people. And if I fail to meet those obligations, I'll probably have a bad time, which again is a very psychopathic way of putting it. But I promise I'm, I'm a generally nice guy. Yeah, so that's interesting. It seems like one way out of the problem is to we generate morality out of self-interest. So in other words, you say to yourself, well, if I want to live in a society, um, there are certain obligations I have to take on, certain rights that have to be allocated to others, and that isn't my rational self-interest to do. So it's not that it's you know right in some like ontological sense in the world. Uh, it's just that it's it's rational for me to act as if these things are right. And maybe the agreements themselves, the fact that we've entered into these things, um, which are to my benefit, well, the question is whether that is a right-making property at all. In other words, are we constructing morality out of agreement? Or is it just that it's um, better to act as if um, you know there is a right-making property and it just is better for me to do this and to accept these obligations but there's nothing actually right or wrong going on all as you say that all kind of moral language is just bogus it's all kind of nonsensical borrowing in some kind of practical sense um, so I mean you might think for example that like abiding by a legal system is a prudentially good idea in other words if you disobey the law you're going to wind up in prison but you don't have to think that the law is moral you know, you could think that, well, often legal systems are very immoral. Um, um, you know, assuming that you believe in things like morality, you could see that those two things pulling apart. Um, you just think, well, there's no morality at all. There are only just these social rules. And it's a question of whether it's in your self-interest to abide by them or not. Yeah, I mean, that's, I think that's definitely one, one route you can take. Um, I mean, I wouldn't say that in agreeing, for example, I mean, we all agreed that we would be here at, at a certain time. Uh, we, we made a kind of promise to each other, I'm going to be online at this time. Um, I think it's, it's in my interest to, to be here and to, um, to you know, do, do this podcast with you. But, uh, but yeah, if I, if I sort of failed to come here and I, I lied to you and I said, oh, sorry, you know, uh, I, I said I was going to be there, but I'm not going to be there. Um, yeah, I don't think that that would be immoral as such, but I don't think that our agreement created a moral fact. I think it's just a fact about us. We agree to do something, it, seemingly because we wanted to, and it's going to give it, give us some benefit. So why not do it? So yeah, I think that there's benefit to acting as if these things were real. But I mean, I also think there's benefit in acting as if other people have mental states, even though I think neither is the case. So, so you could cash this out in 
kind of utilitarian terms. So you could say, it is the case that my reneging on this agreement will cause Mark and Jason to suffer. Um, and, you know, it is the case that uh, engaging in this discussion will bring me pleasure. And that kind of mirrors the language of a consequentialist theory. Um, but you just don't make the extra leap, which is to say that, you know, um, pain is bad and pleasure is good. You just go, well, those things don't really make sense to me. The idea of good and bad or right and wrong, like, you know, those terms are bogus. I, I believe in actual suffering in the world, you know, in other words, the mental anguish or the physical anguish. You know, I believe that people can have these states that they enjoy, um, but I don't think anything beyond that follows. Maybe it's a bit of a bleaker picture of the world. I mean, I, I guess, you know, people like there to be moral values and and all of this, but but no, I think we can get by without that. Um, I, I think that it helps you to avoid a number of metaphysical questions or problems. Um, and it seems to cohere with what evolutionary biology tells us about our, our history. Um, and insofar as it does that, uh, I don't see a, a major problem with it. Actually, I mean, to be very honest, this is why I, I became um, a nihilist. So I used to be very interested in defending realism uh, specifically against these kinds of evolutionary arguments. Um, and I came to think, actually, I can have it all without the commitment to moral realism. Um, and so there was no practical difficulty anymore. There was no problem that there weren't any real moral facts. It was fine. I could just be a, a comfy Rawlsian, or as Alex Rosenberg calls it, a nice nihilist. It seems to me like you are losing something, though. So when we return to the baby case and we asked you, well, why shouldn't you harm the baby? Mark is going to say, well, because the baby is going to suffer. And I'm going to say to you, but why does that, why does that matter? And you're not going to have an answer to that question. Oh, I mean, but that's, the answer is that it doesn't matter as far as I'm concerned, right? It's And that's totally counterintuitive. Um, but but in, in a way that will be universally agreed upon, which is very interesting. Um, so I don't, I, I understand your position, but I don't think that you've got everything you want. You don't have um, an explanation uh, for why in certain situations we, so why certain facts uh, are normative, why, why the baby's suffering uh, is a reason for us not to harm it. You just don't have that. And so you are missing something from your world that the social realist has. Yeah, I mean, so I've definitely given up some some things. Uh, I mean, to, to be a little bit poetic when it comes to uh, th these these cases where something that I consider to be bad has happened uh, and there's just no way of making it right. You know, let's say injustice happens, someone should go to jail, but they, they just never do and they live a comfy life. This is what I classify as a tragedy. And I, I think that the world is in many ways tragic. I think that there are going to be metaphorically now many babies that will suffer and it's tragic and there's nothing else to be said about it. Um, that's the universe we live in, cold, indifferent. Uh, the life we lead is nasty, brutish and short. Um, so yeah, I mean, there is definitely something that I'm, I'm giving up from your perspective because you, you're you saying, look, it matters that this child's gonna suffer. Uh, this is a reason not to harm it. And I don't have access to those, those reasons but I'm saying, really, neither do you. You're just pretending that you do. Um, if we were to be <laughs> more metaphysically realistic, you, you'd realize there are those reasons either.
Uh, but yeah, I mean, the, the pretending is part of it. This is what I think Mark was talking about earlier. Acting as if uh, there, there are these sorts of obligations and so on can, from an internal perspective, be useful. I mean, for example, I don't want to go around killing babies and if I, or torturing uh, babies. And if I think, oh, well, I'll just act as if there's an obligation not to wantonly murder people, I'll still be able to have my cake and eat it too, or almost so. I think we can tie this up quite neatly, which is that if you want to be evolutionary fit and, you know, impregnate as many women as possible, you've got two choices, which is, you know, be the nice guy who finishes last or be the nihilist with the swagger who can say like, baby, I don't believe in morality. Why don't you stay over? <laughs> That's a lovely way to end things. <laughs> oh God. Thank you very much. <laughs>